The connection between you and your therapist matters. That's why Alma focuses on helping you find the right someone to talk to, not just anyone. When you browse their online directory, you can filter your search by what you want to focus on, like anxiety, relationships, or big life transitions. You can also specify preferences around gender, race, faith, and more to help you find someone who's more likely to understand where you're coming from. Alma also makes it easy for therapists to navigate insurance. That's why 95% of providers in their directory accept insurance for sessions, so you can find care that's affordable too. You want to talk to someone, but not just anyone. Alma is there to help you find the right fit. Visit helloalma.com slash not just anyone to schedule a free consultation today. That's helloalma.com slash not just anyone. Oh, man. Um, well, from the time I got the call, I was doing stand-up. It was the life source of everything I do. And then I got the call from Lauren. You know, as soon as I heard his voice, I put my pants on. Because I felt like he would hear that I didn't have pants on. And I just, I didn't need to kick off the relationship like that, you know what I mean? Like, this is a business call. I don't need to be out here pantsless taking this job. So, But I came to the job. I was already on another show, and Lauren was not worried about it. Like, his confidence is just through the roof. He's just like, oh, you're on this little show, but we'll, we'll, we'll deal with that. I'm like, what? We can just do that? The craziest thing was when Trump was, I guess that was season 42, right before the election that summer, the race was, like, getting hot where it looked like he not reasonably could win, but... You know, like, it was possible. It was a realistic possibility for once. It felt like I remember I was staying at a Trump hotel in Chicago, which was my favorite hotel in the country. It was, like, my favorite place. I love this hotel for some reason. This hotel, I think it was like it has, like, sentimental value because I had, like, this really big gig, and they flew me out, and they put me up there, like, years ago. And it was, like, the nicest place I ever stayed. So, like, for some reason, that hotel was, like, a special place to me. And I was staying there, and I had all this Trump member. I had, like, a little Trump card and all these Trump chocolates and Trump pens and all this stuff. And I was sending it to the anchors. I was like, dude, I'm going to come out and be a Trump supporter because it'll be so funny that it's clearly, no, I'm not a Trump supporter, but it'd be funny to be the guy that is. Like, we should just, like, have fun with it. And then the closer it got to the show, it seemed a little bit too real that he was going to win. And we're like, we can't do that because then people are going to really believe that we're Trump supporters. But it was funny when it was silly, when it was like, there's no way. But when it becomes a possibility, then it's like, maybe we shouldn't. The thought I had early on, which I think has been supported by the last couple of years, which is at the onset, our guess as to how to portray Trump as president, I said I wanted to make him as two-dimensional as I thought the man himself actually is. Then you go on and he becomes the president, and we did three shows or whatever it was before the election, assuming he would lose. And then he becomes the president, and this incomprehensible thing takes place where we now have this guy in our face. Now, he is a bit camera shy, if I can use that phrase. He's a bit camera shy in terms of press conferences and speaking to the media, who are his avowed enemy in his mind. But when you see him, I mean, in my mind, he's really not that much different from what I'm doing and what we're doing. I think people respond to that who like it. They say to themselves that, and this is a very common thing we've heard, you almost can't parody him because he's so self-parodying. But for those people that think that shared awareness of his behavior is therapeutic for them, great. I think that's part of the reason we're doing it. And we do it because we think it's funny. I think he's funny to a degree, or he has been funny up to a point. 40 minutes before the first episode of Saturday Night Live aired on October 11th, 
1975, Chevy Chase was at Hurley's Bar downstairs in Rockefeller Center, drinking coffee with Herb Sargent, a wily writer on the show and the only one with years of experience. Chase had just finished dress rehearsal and was getting ready to go back up for the real deal. But before doing so, before the very first minute of SNL had aired, Chase flabbergasted Sargent by worrying out loud, what's going to become of me after this? Where will I go from here? Sargent later remembered thinking the question seemed a tad premature and that they didn't reflect much faith in the new show. But they do help explain why Chase, alone among the show's young cast of comic actors, left midway through the second season, off to seek his fortune in Hollywood. But at least he went back upstairs that night. Soon, at precisely 11.30 p.m. Eastern Time, live from Studio 8H, Saturday Night Live was born. The show's first cold open, meaning a sketch that preceded any opening credits, music, or ballyhoo, began with a shot of slender, acerbic writer Michael O'Donohue, dressed professorily, sitting in a Spartan apartment lit by a bare bulb and holding an open book. Enter John Belushi, then an unknown actor aged 26, shuffling down a few steps like someone in their 80s, wearing a Russian hat and overcoat and carrying a bag of groceries. He sits in the chair across from O'Donohue, and they begin what seems to be an English lesson, with Belushi repeating in an Eastern European accent each sentence O'Donohue reads, among them, I would like to feed your fingertips to the Wolverines. Suddenly, O'Donohue clutches his chest and slumps from his chair to the floor. Dutifully, Belushi repeats the gestures precisely, his pudgy carcass joining O'Donohue's on the carpet. By this time, two minutes into Belushi's SNL career, we already have some idea of the raw, mercurial, explosive talent within his prodigious frame. Then the show wastes no time in crashing through the fourth wall. Chevy Chase burst onto the stage, holding a clipboard, wearing a headset, and shouting, Live from New York, it's Saturday night! It's a terrible cliche, yes, but the phrase applies. Television would never be the same. The old movie that had been queued up by NBC engineers to run in case of catastrophe, on orders from network executives, would not be needed. Ever. Welcome to Chapter 4 of Origins, Saturday Night Live behind the scenes of season 44. A trip backstage to uncover how the landmark show is preparing for its latest new season. The wild and frickin' you ignorant slut. Yeah. Hello, boys and girls. Oh, isn't that special? Uh-oh, Gina! The coffee talk, I'm your host. Sometimes when you're president, you have to make sacrifices, so I skip the back nine. Live from New York! Live from New York! Live from New York! It's Saturday night! We'll also attempt to answer the mystical question at the heart of the matter when it comes to SNL. How is that heart still ticking? Now, as for where to start, or more importantly, with whom, I think we have to go with history and clout. To try calculating the contribution Lauren Michaels makes, and has made, to Saturday Night Live is folly. Because long ago, Michaels and the show he created melded and merged. Now they are one, virtually conjoined. Except for a five-year hiatus that Michaels took in SNL's first decade, Michaels has never missed a single broadcast. Born in Canada, but raised on American television, Michaels had been pursuing a career as a stand-up, half of a team of two, when he relocated to the U.S. and began writing for such comedy shows as Rowan and Martin's Laughing, which helped popularize topical satire, but of a fairly anodyne sort. Sketches interspersed with jokes that harkened back to vaudeville and burlesque from pre-TV decades. SNL would have none of that. Television was being taken over by the first generation to grow up with it, 
and Michaels led the charge. Determined the show felt new in all ways, didn't pander to the audience, and had a razor-sharp cutting edge, all in an effort to define SNL's brand of television as cool, not quaint. And if mom and dad left the room shaking their heads in bafflement, so much the better. When SNL first went on the air, Michaels was considered by some at NBC to be just a smart-alecky young producer and writer, albeit one with a ferocious determination about the show he was then in the throes of inventing. Since those days, he has branched out far beyond SNL as a film producer, a series executive producer, an entertainment entrepreneur, and has taken over the entire NBC late-night schedule, becoming a major force in American television. I began the interview by asking Michaels if he had been able to flip off his SNL switch at any point since the last season ended in May. It took me about six weeks, seven weeks after the season. And then I went away for a long time, most of July. And by the time I came back, I felt pretty clear. July has traditionally been an important time for you, right? Yeah. I think for me, because I'm so, put so much energy into holding it all together, that it's a big group. But they're not all getting along. You have a common purpose. You have to just keep heading towards 11.30 each week. So I think by the end of the season, you just want to kill everyone. And then you go away. And then you start to think about things. And then you start to miss people. And But on a certain level, the show doesn't go away anymore. Because it's all either we're making decisions about new people or going and looking at new people or deciding who we're bringing back. The debut of the season is in just a couple of weeks. Uh-huh. Do you ever think about like goals for a new season? You don't really think like that, right? No, I don't. You don't. And even within the week, it's Monday or it's Friday, you know, you know the day and where it should be on that day and get the thing so that it comes to a boil at 11.30. And now we are in the age of Trump, who hosted SNL in 2016 then became the show's preferred satirical target. Since the election, leading up to the election, and then after the election, it's just been so intense, and it changes up to the last minute, and you don't know where, you know, the president will do something else, and and on a certain level, the whole country is watching, not just us, obviously, but people are consumed by it, so you want to get it right. It was interesting. I was in France, and I was talking to somebody who, they watched the show on YouTube, And it's that way pretty much all over Europe. And so there's another kind of audience for it now in terms of you can sort of feel its influence. Actor Alec Baldwin, who first hosted SNL on April 21st, 1990, now holds the record for most episodes ever hosted by a celebrity or by anybody. 17. These days, however, it's not his hosting duties that Baldwin is best known for around Rockefeller Center. For the past two seasons, he has appeared frequently as embattled President Donald J. Trump in sketches on the show, especially the cold opens that begin it. Even more than Tina Fey's surprise returns as one-time vice presidential candidate Sarah Palin, Baldwin scores way up there amongst iconic appearances by non-cast members. He also dwarfs all competition when it comes to being identified with the show's 21st century image. Baldwin's cold opens have themselves become news, commonly going viral across the internet and eliciting typically defensive tweets from our 45th president, who, by the way, claims to prefer Daryl Hammond's impression of him over Baldwin's. It's easy to see why Baldwin gets under Trump's skin. With his face turned Cheeto orange by the show's brilliant makeup artist and his mouth twisted into a gaping fish-like pucker, Baldwin goes to silent film extremes to capture Trump. Right now, we could come out of the gate. Uh, Remember that my ideas 
hold the least sway with the writers. The writers there want to do the writing, and they make that very clear to you. They, they are absolutely, positively not interested in your input, my input. I mean, and they say that they're as polite and they're as velvety as you possibly can be about that. I might change a phrase. I'll say, well, that's too mean, or, you know, my daughter goes to school with that guy's kids, and I've got to be very careful about where they cast their net. But the thing that I think about now is that, you know, for those people who don't think it's funny, you know, I get that. I mean, there are people who, they just don't think it's funny, and they don't think I'm funny. And they're like, there's so many other people that are funnier at this. I'm like, okay, great. And I've said many times, I'll give you Lauren's phone number, you call him, and you come in, and you know, you, the job is yours if he'll hire you. You, know, you can have it. In 2005, when Colin Jost was hired as a writer at SNL, he was just 22 years old and had already served as president of the Harvard Lampoon and developed his own distinctive edge of deadpan style, informed in part by SNL stalwart Norm MacDonald. By 2009, Jost had worked his way up to the position of writing supervisor and then from 2012 to 2015, served as co-head writer, a role he took again in 2017. Most fans, however, know Jost from Weekend Update, the extremely visible and popular feature of the show since its and the show's debut on opening night, 1975. What about the meta question, to Trump or not to Trump? I mean, it's such a big, big thing, right? Yeah, I mean, it's certainly the craziest political time I've been alive for. So the show is going to reflect that in some way. How the nuance of how often you see Trump or how or how that impression evolves or how the writing for Trump evolves that's constantly happening week to week, but there's not like a a one or two or five year plan for it. There's just a, we'll see what happens because, you know, we're now, I don't know what, three weeks away from the premiere of the show. And between now and then, so much could change. There could be a Mueller investigation revelation in those three weeks. Like you don't know what's going to happen. So you learn over time. Sometimes you want to plan ahead when you have moments of, I really want to have a, grander scheme in place here and then you, it always gets undone because something comes up then something changes in with trump or with america and attitude shifts and so you you can never really get ahead of it you have to wait and you have to be reactive trump's insane i think most people know he is insane we have a man who is president is insane and when i do this thing now lauren of course everybody knows this, lauren pulls his punches and you want to see he's very right to do that. He's the producer of a very successful TV show. And Lorne, when you sit with him, you can see Lorne kind of, he'll raise his eyebrows with some little facial tick of his. He'll indicate to you he thinks we're going too far. You can't go far enough with this idiot. You can't go far enough. The great Baltic nations, even in the game Monopoly, Baltic Avenue was always my favorite property. <laughs> Except for Oriental Avenue, which you can't say anymore, okay? Michael Che is a native New Yorker and the youngest of seven children. He began performing stand-up in 2009, and in 2012, he booked a set on The Late Show with David Letterman. Che joined SNL as a writer in 2013, and in 2014 began the briefest ever stint as a correspondent on The Daily Show with Jon Stewart, leaving just three months after arriving when SNL announced his selection as co-anchor of Weekend Update with the contrastingly pale Colin Jost though their respective racial contours usually don't figure in their comedy. In addition to that highly prized assignment, Che and Jost are now SNL's head staff writers, and the 35-year-old Che continues to squeeze in as much stand-up as his schedule will allow, 
including a 2016 Netflix special, Michael Che Matters, which very clearly he does. Che made time for an Origins chat with me in our studio in New York City, while he and Joe's prepared for their next big extracurricular gig, co-hosting the 2018 Emmys. No Trump, less Trump. I don't know. I feel like if when it's right, it's right. Like, the funny thing is... There is a Trump exhaustion, I feel like, in the country, just from the show even, you know. But it's hard to leave him out of the conversation. You know, I always feel like the one good thing about Saturday Night Live is it's always been kind of the time capsule of American culture since it's been on the air. And it's kind of hard to tell the story of American culture without talking about Donald Trump at least once a week. I mean, we talk about him 40 times a day just in life. So, you know, we're a show that has a different type of responsibility where, you know, we don't really just do 90 minutes of avant-garde comedy. But it would be hard. We'd miss him, I think. When the show ends in end of May, you decompress for a while and you don't really think about the show for at least a few weeks. And then... By the time you get back here, it's, whatever, three months later when the season starts back up, and things change. Also, you miss Alec. If you're like, oh, we saw Trump two weeks in a row, that feels like too much. But then three months go by, and you're like, where's Alec? It's so funny now. Last season, Keenan Thompson broke Daryl Hammond's record for longest tenure by an SNL cast member, and is now beginning his 16th season. This year, Thompson won an Emmy for co-writing a satirical song, Come Back Barack, and was, for his first time since joining SNL in 2003, nominated for Best Supporting Actor in a Comedy. How could such a key member of the cast have been overlooked for so long? Partly it's Thompson's own fault, for being so damn talented that he makes his work look deceptively easy. He just seems to be having fun, blind decades of hard work, some of it on public TV before he came to SNL. The host of Black Jeopardy, and the record holder for largest number of celebrity impressions on the show, at last count, 129, Thompson welcomed his second child this summer, a daughter who slept soundly while Keenan and I talked at a Greenwich Village restaurant just over a week before the new season of SNL was to begin. I swear, I half expected Thompson to break into seven or eight other characters while we sat there and chatted. The cat's out of the bag, you know what I mean? We kind of know who this guy is and what he's all about, and, like, there's no surprises anymore. Like, the surprise kind of was, like... Oh, man, like, you know, let's see what this guy is going to do. It's probably going to be, you know, crazy and what a lot of, you know, people on the, you know, lefter side of things would, you know, obviously disagree with or whatever. But, like, let's just see what happens because maybe, you know, he'll surprise us. Like, he met with Steve Harvey, he met with Kanye, you know what I mean? He might just surprise us. But, of course, no, you know what I mean? And then, like, we just watched it all unfold and it's kind of like he's already missed his opportunity to kind of, like, denounce the worst people that are out there. People don't even really care because it's like, what can you do? The guy's the president, you know what I mean? And until they like actually bring a real case to him, you know what I mean? It's like the slowest process. I felt like they attacked Bill Clinton within a week, you know what I mean? And like had him on trial like super fast, but like Trump is just like this investigation after that investigation. And meanwhile, he's just like talking shit the whole time, you know what I mean? It's it's, it's crazy. <laughs> Origins is brought to you by One Blade Shave, because One Blade Shave offers a closer, more refined shave. Now, Jim, have you checked this out? Yeah, I actually have. The design is awesome. They actually spent over a million dollars on this thing and built like more than a thousand prototypes to construct the world's best razor. But I don't get what's so good about the design. 
Well, it's like this weird, perfect blend between old school design and great technology. So I kind of put my 18 blade razor aside and tried this. I'm telling you, T, it looks so simple. You don't even realize how high tech it is. So you, you tried it? Yeah, I have. But you got to understand something. This is different than what we're used to, like in shaving. This is kind of like the Ferrari of razors. It's a whole different thing. The one thing you have to keep in mind is you don't want to rush through this. It's harder to do than your regular razor, but it winds up being completely worth it. I mean, the results are just better. It's for the guy who wants literally the equivalent of a barbershop shave, who wants to take some time and do it right. And this delivers like literally the best experience. Count me in. I'm actually going to try this. So if you're ready to really elevate your shaving experience, try One Blade today. Listeners should go to OneBladeShave.com and enter discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. One Blade Shave. Equip yourself with the best. ARIGINS is brought to you by 23andMe. 23andMe is a DNA testing service that produces mind-blowing insights into your ancestry, health, wellness, and traits. You'll not only find out more about where you're from, but the 23andMe Health and Ancestry Service includes reports on how your DNA can influence your weight, sleep quality, caffeine intake, sense of taste, even whether you're likely to be lactose intolerant, and more. For example, the Bitter Taste Report and Sweet versus Salty Reports can show you what role DNA can play in determining your food preferences. Or the Sleep Report can tell you if you're more likely to be an especially deep sleeper based on your DNA. So order your 23andMe Health and Ancestry Service Kit at 23andMe.com slash origins. That's the number 23andMe.com slash origins. True story. When I first tried One Blade Razor, I gave up after 45 seconds. But the packaging was so cool. So that Saturday morning, I tried it again. This time, I actually read the instructions and decided to be, God forbid, a tad patient. The One Blade experience turned out to be time well spent. The design is awesome. They spent over a million bucks and had over a thousand prototypes to build the world's best razor. One Blade didn't set out to create a good razor or even a great razor. Their goal was to create the perfect tool to deliver the perfect shave. And after using it, there's no doubt that they succeeded. Because the one thing that One Blade teaches you is it's not just about the razor, it's about the total shaving experience. This situation is simple. You get a barbershop shave at home. My face has never felt better. And by the way, you get a lifetime guarantee with this thing. And if you don't like it, there's a no-hassle, 60-day trial. No harm, no foul. But I doubt you'll want to let go of it. It's just that good. If you are ready to elevate your shaving experience, try One Blade today. Listeners should go to OneBladeShave.com and enter the discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off their entire purchase. That's OneBladeShave.com and enter the discount code ARIGINS15 at checkout for 15% off your entire purchase. One blade. Come for the shave, stay for the deep breath. I mean, there were people who, after the Sopranos-esque ending last season, thought, well, maybe that was the show's signal that they were ending it. It was funny because there was a whole audience that immediately saw it as the Sopranos, and another audience that was completely baffled by it. I have fun doing it. No doubt about that. I have fun being around them. I can't say it's a lot of fun trying to fabricate this kind of two-dimensional cup that I thought of, but it is a lot of fun to be around them. They're all old and dear friends of mine, and I love going there, and when the show is good, it's nothing like it. But for me, I think I'm going to do some of it, but not a whole lot, not a whole lot. 
But I also think, and this is critical, because I think there's a lot of fatigue. There are a lot of other things that I kind of need to be doing right now on the weekends. You know, the problem with the show is it's that unorthodox schedule and it crashes and destroys every weekend with my family because I'm there in the afternoon, um, Saturday, and they're trying out material and rightfully assuming that things might even change by that night. And then you go home at like one or two o'clock in the morning and it's not great. I think with Alec, I've known him and worked with him for so long that, you know, needless to say, I trust him. And the audience connects to him in that role. Sometimes I feel we're still in campaign mode, but we see each other with Paramount, so we don't much talk about it in the off-season. And then uh, I think he was at the U.S. Open last week, and somebody asked him if he was doing Trump, and he said, yeah, and then his agent, Matt Delpiano, texted me. He said, I think he's doing Trump. (laughs) And I went, oh, okay. But he's somebody you know you can always count on. Right, so it could be yeah. a game-time decision. Oh, I, I think he'll be back. I think there's probably no other actors looking to follow Alec, and I think for a new cast member to come in and try that, I think would be a really tough thing to do. We're going to do the show a few times. But remember, my parody, or any parody, you could get somebody who's impersonating Trump, he's impersonating Pence, you could get somebody who's some multi-headed hydra of comedy impersonations who can do everybody. Like Kate. If I leave the show, I've already told one, Kate should do Trump. Kate's the only one that can do Trump on the show. But my point is is that you can have somebody come in who does a Trump that 100% of the people in this country approve of that person's performance. They think that they're just the funniest person in the world. They do the best Trump impersonation. And you want to think that's going to have no impact on the election whatsoever. None. None. The only thing that's going to change the course of this election is voter turnout. Whenever he makes a headline, it's like somebody's got to like be able to mimic that, especially if it's a big enough story that you know has some kind of capability of finding a comedy moment in it. You know what I mean? Like that's yeah. kind of our job. But pass it to a cast member, get a new take, get a fresh you know voice on it, something new. So if he wants, you know what I mean? If he's feeling overburdened, like that's kind of what we're there for. So I'm sure somebody can figure it out. It's so broad particularly what Alec is doing, but it's not as large as what Trump is doing, you know, because it's all, it's all larger than life. I mean, and if some of the stuff that Trump actually does, if the show did it instead of him, people would say, now you've gone too far. Right. But there he is doing it. Yeah, and also, remember, Trump also grew up on the show. So there's some regard that he has. He attacks Alec because Alec attacks him. But the best I think he's come up with against the show is it's not funny anymore, but... People have been saying, saying that yes. since year one. So I think you try as hard as you can to find the line where you can still bring the bigger audience and the audience who are not crazed along with you. So do you think the show last season was agnostic with Trump? I think the passions are so high, you know, among the cast, among the writing staff, and there's a, a strong feeling of outrage and it shows up. But I think you still have to do it in a measured way. There's no question how Kate feels about Jeff Sessions. But the tale, which was an invention of Kate's, is there because she thought it was right. Do you know what I mean? I don't, I don't know what kind of political statement it is, but it's like a, there's something to her brilliance that's 
the way she wanted to play the character. The Leonard Cohen, after Hillary lost yeah. segment, that was pretty unbridled. Yeah, it was a powerful thing. There's no Switzerland in that one. No, and I think it played in all 50 states. It was a kind of healing moment or some level of we've taken this in and this is what happened and now we carry on and we go forward and we don't change or give up. We just, just next week. Some people when I'm on the road doing stand-up come up to me and say, you got to go way harder at Donald Trump or great job being really tough on Trump. And then other people will come up and be like, do you have to be so mean to Trump? Like, you got to be nicer to Trump. You know, like, you can't... So you've been doing a lot of stand-up in Utah and Indiana. Yeah, exactly, exactly. I did some really fun shows in Alabama, actually, which, that was an interesting mix. Really, it is. Anywhere in America, you get that mix. You get maybe a show in Monterey in California is probably not as much pro-Trump. But you do get... Even people who don't love Trump like the idea of that people have respect for the president. So that's always a, a delicate balance. I think that our show is always reflecting how America feels. So at times, America is very conflicted about what to do or how to move forward. And that comes through in sketches sometimes. Or, you know, like there was a sketch last year about handling all the discussion around like some of the Aziz stuff and the sketch that was about how people didn't even know how to talk about it, you know? And I think that's what the show tries to capture is just we're all going through similar things and we, we're trying to figure out how to, you know, process it. It's like the two things that people do not want to admit in a comedy <laughs> crowd is that they're using dating apps or that they voted for Trump, you know? Like, yeah, statistically, no one here is dating online and no one voted for Trump. <laughs> Once Alex started doing it, all sorts of people called or wrote me and said, you know, if you need me, I'm happy to come in. So Bill Hader can do Scaramucci or Fred can do Michael Wolf or whatever. You're trying to cast it as opposed to have somebody try and do an impression. I think that De Niro coming in and doing Muller and Ben coming in and doing Michael Cohn allowed us to stay in that part of the show in this other zone where we could bring in bigger guns who would be normally hosts but could come in and do that. Anytime there's a cast member could do it, like Mikey Day and Alex doing the Trump sons, they're brilliant. Do you know what I mean? And as funny as anything. So anytime we can use the cast, it's great. And anytime where it's going to be a one-time only, or it's sort of nice to be able to have that reach. So I'm here with my two producers, Terrence and Basil, and we got a problem and a solution. What's the problem? Yeah, what's the problem? No time. Well, that's true. Yeah, it's a pretty big problem. <laughs> so now the question is, what's the solution? Great question. Have you guys heard about HelloFresh? Actually, I've heard of it, but I'm not sure, Terrence, you've heard of it, right? Yeah, very vaguely, but I would love to hear more because it actually sounds pretty cool. Well, HelloFresh is a meal kit delivery service that shops, plans, and delivers step-by-step -step recipes and pre-measured ingredients so you could just cook, eat, and enjoy. So what does that really mean? It means that you don't have to come home and start to think about what the heck you're going to make for dinner. So wait, how does it work? Do they give you like options or what's the deal? Yeah, so basically what happens is there's three plans to choose from. You got a classic, vegetarian, and a family plan. What that means is you go online, you pick it out in advance, 
it's delivered to your door in this recyclable insulated packaging and you just open it up. And so you already kind of have half your dinner ready for you because you don't have to think about what you're going to make. You don't have to go to the store and pick something up. I don't know. I just, I don't know about you guys, but I get burned out on the idea of stopping at the store on the way home. Oh my God. Yeah. And actually this is really cool because it, like you said, it has three different categories. So everybody's happy. It does sound pretty cool. And also kind of, you know, as a single guy in New York city, I don't cook a lot. This might help me cook. What do you think? Well, we have to talk about the single part first. <laughs> Cause <laughs> I think that you should there be, there is no solution for that. Yeah, that's, that's a different You should problem. be rocking this for two. Um, <laughs> but no, the truth is that if you think about it, what you spend on takeout, you're better off just going home and starting with this, with HelloFresh, because it's going to be cheaper and it's going to be better quality. It's a good point, Terrence. Listen to the man. The man makes a good point. And here's the deal. The account is so easy to manage, you get to choose your delivery date so you can match it with your schedule. And you can also pause deliveries for when you go on vacation and when you meet Miss Wright. You can also bump it up to two. You know, pretty soon you'll be getting that family plan. This is making a lot of sense to me. I'm in. I'm in on HelloFresh, I think. I am too. So HelloFresh has a great deal. For a total of $60 off, that's $20 off your first three boxes, visit HelloFresh.com slash Origin60. That's HelloFresh.com slash Origin60. And enter that exact code, Origin60. I'm pretty excited to say hello to HelloFresh. Oh, that's cheesy. But that is, it works. Okay. All right. We'll go with that. But that was really bad. <laughs> but you got to remember Origin60 because that's the code that's going to unlock this offer. HelloFresh.com slash Origins60. Chris Red's first performing dream was to be a rapper, a dream which, he said, he saw die in his face, then resurrect itself like a phoenix, when in 2016, he played fictional rapper Hunter the Hungry in the movie Popstar, Never Stop, Never Stopping. This year, Red has come full circle, winning an Emmy for Best Original Song and Lyrics, for the SNL music sketch, Come Back Barack, which he performed with longtime SNL superstar Kenan Thompson and Chance, the real-life rapper. Red is a stand-up, an improv comic who cut his teeth at Second City in Chicago and an actor who has appeared on shows as varied as Netflix Disjointed and NBC's Will and Grace. Sitting down with Red in person, it was as if he almost dared me not to love him. The guy is magic. I think somebody always has to comment on something going on politically. I think that's it's because it's happening in front of us, and that's kind of the the trap of it all, right? Is like something that we, you can't just ignore this huge thing going on. But there's Trump exhaustion, a hundred percent. Me personally, I've always liked social commentary. Way I like to focus on social commentary, like, and I'm also political. I also like to like to comment on things going on in politics, but for my comedy, I don't. it's not hyper-focused on it. In my hour, I have maybe 20 minutes of, of political stuff. The rest of it is the people that you see, the people that make up the world, the rest of the world, because there's so much more going on. There's so much more we can make fun of and have fun with, and I like that stuff, you know what I mean? I, I'd much rather talk about this guy I saw walking to uh, Walgreens who had a hole in the front of his crotch for some reason. I'd rather talk about that guy and what's going on there than talk about what this dude's doing in this office yet again. But we need that, though, too. So, but I think we just need to like, also, like, you know, do some stuff that ain't so heavy. Do some stuff that's going on that's just like, yo, this is just life things happening. Social commentary things would be, like, fun. So, I, I mean, that's what I like to do. And I think that we were... We write towards that, and, and if it works that week, it works, and if it doesn't, it doesn't. But I won't be hyper-political, because I feel like people do it better, 
at that job than me. That's just something you got to know as a comic that like some people just do that shit better. Now, if I'm on the road and I come up with a bit and it's good enough, I'll like come in and be like, hell yeah, let's, I got this thing, I got this take on this. But I I would rather have the most original angle and not come with it so much than, than to have just a, a lame, easy thing to do and come with all the time, you know? Steve Higgins has two full-time jobs. Three, if you want to get technical about it, since he both writes and produces for SNL and serves as the announcer for The Tonight Show, starring Jimmy Fallon, where he is known as and referred to by the host as simply Higgins. Once the monologue and opening bit are over, Higgins will often sneak off from the seventh floor of 30 Rockefeller Center up to SNL offices to prep for that Saturday's SNL. He is a busy man. Over the course of his 23 illustrious years at SNL, Higgins has won two Emmys and been nominated for 20 more, plus five Writers Guild Awards. He's a stand-up, a voice actor, and has contributed to some of SNL's most enduring sketches. With the obvious exception of Lorne Michaels, Higgins has survived more of the show's dramatic ups and downs on the air and behind the scenes than probably anyone else. There's always that question, right? It happened with Will and W mm-hmm. and just about diminishing marginal returns and right. how often you go to it. Well, it's so hard because it's just he's everywhere. You know, it's like his people are all saying, like, you guys have gone too far. You just made fun of him. You just did this. And you're going like, well, it's how? It's like doing a um, TV evangelist. It's a hard thing to do because he's so, he's turned into such a cartoon character of himself, you know. And you, that last rally when it's just like, bing, bong, boom, Abe Lincoln with the hat, free-flowing. It's hard to parody a parody. You can think back to Danny doing Nixon and Chevy, of course, with Ford. Yeah. But... Would you agree we're, we're dealing with an outlier of situations here? The, the show, despite its rich legacy with presidents yeah. and politics, this no, is new this ground. This is at another level, yeah. But I also think there are things like Bush-Gore, that whole election, I think. What Will was doing, what Daryl was doing, what Downey was doing, and Franken, all of that, you could feel that the country was tuning into it. And it probably had some influence on it you know, in such a close election. On the elections that are one-sided, I don't think anybody cares. When Daryl did Gore in May of the season before the election, it didn't work. It was a perfect Gore, but I think people just weren't somehow, Clinton so held the stage that they weren't really there for it. Mm. But when we did that first debate and... The lockbox. Lockbox, and then the whole, everybody just... It carried the audience. How do you calculate whether or not it's too much, particularly with this guy who takes up so much oxygen? Yeah. I think you just want to get the right take. Make sure that it comes from some kind of intelligent place. Because we're on in all 50 states, so you don't want to be unfair, you know, or just partisan because all the cable news shows do that. And so you want a fair hit. You want a clean hit or else... You become like the news. Well, as head writer, if there is going to be life or some life without Alec doing Trump, that cold open, there's a lot more pressure, isn't there? No, I don't think there's ever pressure. I try not to ever say that. There's there's never pressure in comedy. If it's funny, people aren't going to argue with it, you know? If it's funny, if people like it, it'll be a welcome change, you know? I don't think that it's pressure. I never want to put myself in a pressure category for something that's comedy. Let's say previously I got like 75% said, oh, we think that's funny or good for you or 
were glad that they're sticking it to him. They might not even have thought it was that funny, but they love the idea of putting it to him in that way. They're so disapproving of him. But now it's like 50-50, not even because of their politics. There's two subsets, one who are supporters of Trump and another group who are, they just don't think I'm funny or it's funny, and they say it very loudly, you know. There's like half the people I see out there saying, you got to stop. I think to do a little bit less of it, which I have to have that schedule necessarily anyway, might be for the better. Because I think people are really, really, you know, they're scared. They're scared. And God knows people hate Trump. They hate him. They hate him like he's Mussolini or Franco. They hate him. I'm not going to say Hitler because Hitler's in a separate category by himself. But they hate him like he's a fucking dictator. And they want him gone. A growing number of people want him out. How do you keep yourself from being discouraged from the actual news while you're preparing for Weekend Update? I try to watch the news and filter the news like the way my grandfather did or the way my grandmother would from a very... And there's no disrespect to them, but just from a very layman face value kind of process, I think that's always usually the funniest take is just the initial knee jerk reaction comedically is usually the fun way to tell that story or the fun way to kind of frame that joke. I think a lot of times, especially comedians, we get a little bit in our heads and we start to think that we're a little bit more important than we are. And we even start to think that we're maybe journalists and you know and, and even the audience does the audience is like you know i get all my news from you and i'm like well that's not a good thing because <laughs> i'm definitely not up here telling news stories i'm telling jokes first so i think if it comes from just a what does this sound like to everybody initially it makes it feel a little bit fresh because i don't know that a lot of people are doing that on tv i feel like everybody on tv is kind of experts you know or at least they believe they are and that can get boring you know, the fact that the show's 90 minutes mm-hmm. and you have such an oversized president, such a character, do you ever worry that the political part of the show is going to be like a tsunami that will wash over some of the other stuff and it's hard to, like, get the reoccurring sketches back uh-huh. and, and breathe life into other parts of it because everybody's so looking for the show to talk about politics. But I I also think, you know, remember there's people 10 years old watching it and people 75 watching it, and they all feel that it's sort of their show. And I think the big task, which is more of a show business task than anything else, is you've got to hold the audience. And you can hold them in these kind of periods with politics. Other times you couldn't give it away because they don't care, you know, and... And I think the cast are so talented that new features happen, whether they happen on Update. I mean, both Heidi and Chris Red had brilliant debut seasons last year, you know, and you saw it. And somehow we always make room, the audience always make room for anything that's fresh and new. And I think if you stop doing that, then you become stale. So there's always that element. It's not my call, honestly, but... You could see it on Alex's face, like what a burden it started to become for him, you know what I mean? Playing somebody that he obviously doesn't really like in real life, you know what I'm saying? Or whether it's he just disagrees with his policies or whatever. It seems like he genuinely doesn't like the guy. So to be on you know, a major platform like that every single week, playing somebody that you despise who can also like respond to you and then you guys get in a back and forth on a Sunday, that's got to be exhausting. I mean, comedy-wise, Nobody likes to hear the same jokes over and over again. 
you don't come there for that. You know what I mean? You come there for a new experience or a new escape of some sort. And when it becomes like the same old kind of thing, you're not escaping anymore. I'm writing this on September 11th of 2018. And naturally, like millions of others, am unable to escape reflections on September 11th of 2001, a now annual national ritual. Like you, I can't stop thinking of everyone and everything we lost that darkest day, about the families of those who perished, about how radically our world has changed. Everyone has personal memories of that day. Mine involved my children, and oddly or not, Saturday Night Live. On the morning of September 11th, my plan was to drop my son and daughter off at Princeton Day School as usual, take a train to Newark, then board a PATH train to the World Trade Center so I could be downtown for a scheduled interview with SNL cast member John Lovitz. I'd been interviewing cast members from all different eras for Live from New York, the SNL book I co-wrote with Pulitzer Prize winner Tom Shales. I dropped my son off as scheduled, but my daughter didn't want to get out of the car. And so we repeated a little ritual we had developed over the past couple days. I parked the car and walked her into school in order to say goodbye to her at her locker. Selfishly, I loved the extra time with her, so for me, it was no problem. I had even gotten there a few minutes early because I knew I had the train to catch, just in case there wasn't a goodbye from the car. But after putting her backpack in the locker and squatting down for a goodbye hug, Sophie, then five, hesitated again. Inexplicably, she just didn't want to go to school that day. We had a 10-minute fatherly chat that seemed to ease her anxiety, and as she entered the classroom, Dad bolted for the train station. I remember this so vividly because I got to the tracks just as the train was pulling away. Missed it by less than a minute. And so I had to wait for the next train, which would arrive in another 25 minutes. Those 25 minutes proved to be consequential, to say the least. By the time I got to Newark to transfer to a PATH train bound for the World Trade Center, one of the buildings of the World Trade Center was engulfed in smoke. Confusion, anger, panic, and fear were also heavy in the morning air. I called Lovitz, and we naturally canceled, and I took a train back home, my mind haunted by anxious questions, everything having been thrown into dark confusion. Saturday Night Live figures in my 9-11 memories, and probably yours, in another way, because of course, Lorne Michaels and NBC had made the difficult decision to return to the air on Saturday night, September 22nd, after a planned hiatus and not to run a repeat. That night was covered in Live from New York, and was among many instances in which SNL assumed a much higher political profile than usual. Although 9-11, of course, transcends politics and is now a tragic part of national and global history, a burst of madness that seems to have ushered in a century, if not a millennium of it. The cold open at the start of the show began with a stark image of then-Mayor Rudolph Giuliani and a group of New York firefighters and police standing on home base in Studio 8H. The mayor shared his thoughts on the tragedy, ending with, quote, we choose to live our lives in freedom, end quote. Then Lauren's longtime friend, Paul Simon, movingly performed his song, The Boxer. Simon could almost have been singing about Saturday Night Live and the old expression, bloodied but unbowed. In the clearing stands a boxer and a fighter by his trade, and he carries the reminders of every glove that laid him down or cut him till he cried out in his anger and his shame, I am leaving, I am leaving, but the fighter still remains.
Hey friends, this is Jen Hatmaker, your happy host of the For the Love podcast. You may wonder how I got into this podcasting thing. Well, I'm a speaker and an author who has happened to write a few New York Times bestselling books that really resonated with a pretty large community of women. And I thought, how great would it be to drop into the ears of this growing community every week via the magic of podcasting? So that's what we did. And I'm delighted to say we've been able to spark a bit of delight and uncover some hope and talk with great people about the big and small things that we care about and that affect our lives on the daily. So I'm thrilled to invite you to join me every Wednesday for new episodes of the For the Love podcast, where you'll hear the most incredible conversations with some of the best people on this planet. We're going to bring you moments of connection and laughter and hot takes on the things we care about going on in the world. So listen to and follow For the Love with Jen Hatmaker a Four Eyes Media production presented by Odyssey. You can get it on the Odyssey app or wherever you get your podcasts.